John Hancock is one of the most famous signatures in the history of the United States. Most people don't know much more than that about him. Brooke Barbier, who is the founder of Ye Old Tavern's Tour of Boston, wants to change your perception of this American signer of the Declaration of Independence. Barbier's newest book is called King Hancock. He got that moniker back in the middle of the 1700s. The author writes, quote, his stature eventually rose so high that he became known by both his friends and enemies by that name. Brooke Barbier, there is a story in your book about John Hancock and salmon. Do you remember <laughs> that? Tell that yes, story because that seems to be a very important happening. Yeah, so on the morning of the the beginning of the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Lexington happened at dawn on April 19th, 1775. And we think of Paul Revere and his famous midnight ride warning the countryside that the regulars were on their way. But his primary goal that night was to warn Hancock and Adams that they were in danger. So when Revere gets to Lexington, a mere hours before the Revolutionary War begins, he warns Hancock and Adams that the regulars are coming and that they should flee. They don't hasten to flee. It takes them a bit of time to flee. But when they arrive to Woburn, a neighboring town in a safe house, Hancock is so unfazed by what's happening that morning that he asks that his carriage go back to Lexington and retrieve the salmon that he wanted to dive into. And so the carriage does go back and get the salmon. And sadly for Hancock, he has to flee Woburn shortly after. And so he doesn't get to enjoy his salmon at any point that day. What was the world like in Boston around this very time? Boston was the third largest town by population. Philadelphia was the largest and then with about 20,000 people. And then New York City and Boston was about 15,500 people in the 1760s. It was a small town. It was two miles from tip to tip. And most people made their living from the sea, importing and exporting goods, Boston was also a town that was founded by Puritans in 1630. And that strict sense of religion does still play into the colony in, in the 1760s and 70s. They're not run necessarily by Puritans anymore, but that legacy you can still feel. It's a very religious town. There are many churches as well. And then the other thing to know about Boston is that it's a hard drinking town. They are the leading rum distiller in the 13 North American colonies. So rum is cheap and plentiful in Boston. There are many taverns in Boston. And all of that plays into a town that was both religious and proud to be a part of the British Empire and scrappy and social and eager also to protest any rights against the British Empire they felt were being violated. How far is Lexington from downtown Boston? Lexington's about 15 miles. And what were Samuel Adams and John Hancock doing in Lexington when Paul Revere came out that way? Yeah, they. so the Provincial Congress was meeting in Concord, Massachusetts, 
which is about five miles from Lexington. The Provincial Congress was a temporary government and Hancock was serving as the president of the Provincial Congress. And rather than come back to Boston, in 1775, it was pretty dangerous there. So Adams and Hancock, who would be targets by British officers and soldiers, decided to stay in the countryside. So they stayed in Lexington. The idea that when Revere warns Hancock and Adams that the regulars are coming and that they should flee was actually bad intelligence. The British soldiers planned to march really just to Concord, but to get through to Concord, they had to pass through Lexington. And that's where some of the idea came that the British soldiers were going to kidnap Hancock and Adams. How old was John Hancock at that time? John Hancock would have been 38 years old. How old was Samuel Adams? About a decade older. Why did Samuel Adams hate John Hancock? (laughs) (laughs) So Samuel Adams would say that John Hancock was vain and didn't wasn't in public office for the right reasons, that he wasn't looking out necessarily for the public good, that he was frivolous. But most of all, at his core, Adams thought Hancock was far too moderate. Adams was a radical through and through until much later in his life. And Hancock played things a little bit safer. He would go in on the revolution and then he would come out on the revolution. And this annoyed Samuel Adams and John Adams, the cousin of Samuel. Why in the world did you think anybody cares about John Hancock beyond his signature? (laughs) Americans know John Hancock for his signature and little else. But what so fascinated me about Hancock is he was one of the most well-known 18th century Americans. And Americans today reduce him to the signature. He was so pivotal in certain moments during the American Revolution. And he served as the first elected governor of Massachusetts for several one-year terms. So he was instrumental in shaping the new state of Massachusetts and in some ways the early Republic. And so I wanted to bring him forward because we think of George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Hancock was very much uh, in the mix with them, having a role not just in Massachusetts, but in the North American colonies. Why didn't John Adams, the cousin of Samuel Adams, like him? Oh, John John Adams didn't much like John Hancock either for much the same reasons that his cousin Samuel Adams didn't like him. He found him, excuse me, to be vain and to seem to be putting his self-interest and his and the admiration of the people ahead of governing. And I'll say that the Adams cousins, their criticism isn't completely wrong, but they were missing the point in that John Hancock knew what attracted people to a leader and he knew how to build the persona of a leader. And so John Hancock is elected more often than John Adams or Samuel Adams for statewide office. And it's because he was able to cultivate that popularity. Describe John Hancock. John Hancock physically was a pretty 
thin man. He wore, he, that was the end of him looking maybe um, thin of taking up little space because he dressed to present himself and to take up space. He wore a powdered wig. The style changed over the years, but he would either wear a bobbed wig or one with curls in it uh, over the ears. He would wear gilded jackets. He That was a signature look of his, is, is having in gold embroidered jackets and waistcoats. He would wear silk stockings and um, have knee buckles on his britches and um, shoe buckles on his shoes. These were uh, luxurious items that he wore with pride. He was a man who also, so if that's what he looked like physically, in some ways his personality matched that. He was a man who wanted attention. His dad died when he was seven years old, and it seems that he spent his life searching to belong and to feel connected and to feel seen. He was adopted by his wealthy uncle after his dad died, and his uncle was a pretty shrewd businessman. And so you can imagine the difficulty that young John, called Johnny, by his uncle and aunt, you can imagine the trouble that Johnny might Johnny might have felt acclimating to this new town, these new guardians who were very wealthy and still feeling like he found a place for himself. So he was a man who strove to feel that he belonged. He lived on Beacon Hill, as you say, but... What's that mean to people that have never been to Boston? How big a deal was that? In the 18th century, it wasn't a big deal at all. It was pretty unusual. Today, it is the highest rent district to own or rent homes in Boston. But in the 18th century, it was pretty unusual to build a home on Beacon Hill. And Thomas Hancock's mansion, Thomas being the uncle who adopted John, built a large stone mansion at the top of the hill. And this drew townspeople's eyes up to him and really was able to have a perch at the top of the city because Beacon Hill towered over all of Boston as well. So if you have a house on top of the tallest hill, then you're really looking down over everyone in Boston. The mansion also gave great views of the harbor, which is where John Hancock and Thomas Hancock made their money. So it was a great place to look out on a busy wharf. The tallest building used to be in Chicago, the John Hancock building. How did that get that kind of a name? John Hancock's name was used by an insurance company in the mid 19th century. They don't have any connection to the historic man, somewhat like Samuel Adams beer, where they just use the name of a historic figure. And so there's also the tallest building in Boston is the John Hancock Tower. It's been renamed since then, but locals still know it as the John Hancock. And it's simply named after that insurance company. I know that John Hancock would be thrilled, though, to have these tall buildings named for him, even if it doesn't have any real connection to to him, the, the historic figure. Do young people today know the the phrase, put your John Hancock on this piece of paper? They do. I encounter a lot of people. I own a tour company in Boston, and I encounter a lot of people on my tours from all over the country 
And it's a very familiar name to them and a familiar signature and that the name is synonymous with signature. And that dates back over a century. We've associated Hancock's name, Americans have, with signature since the early 20th century. I explore sort of the legacy of Hancock and his name in the epilogue to, to figure out when he became known for this. So yes, still today, that's what people know, but that's exclusively what they know, typically. They don't know the influence that he had in Boston and in North American politics. Was his signature that much larger than everybody else's <laughs> on the Declaration? It's certainly the largest. There's no denying that it's the largest. And I think it's the finest. That's obviously a subjective opinion, but there's there's only a couple other signatures that match it in its uh, refined nature. But it's not as big as we popularly remember. We we sometimes picture it taking up a whole bunch of space on the Declaration of Independence. But the, the Declaration of Independence is actually, there's one original copy and it's quite large. It's two feet um, long. And so his signature doesn't take up that much of the 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 paper. Sometimes I explain it this way, that he was the first to sign it because he was the president. And so he signs it in the middle and the largest. And his signature was the only one needed to ratify the Declaration of Independence. But other men signed beneath Hancock's name, typically with the men from their colonies. And it, to me, it seems as if some men were trying to save space so they were writing smaller so that every, everyone would have room on the Declaration of Independence. But people could have signed larger. There was plenty of room at the original, the bottom of the original for people to sign bigger as well. Um, so John Hancock's is certainly the largest, but not as big as we as we think. What did he have to do with the Declaration? Interestingly, John Hancock wasn't supportive of independence in the months leading up up to independence. We know as late as April 1776, he wasn't in support of it. And his old rivals, John Adams and Samuel Adams, were getting really ticked off because they said he needs to be supportive of independence. And they were talking badly about him amongst other delegates because they thought he should go all in on independence. Hancock is different though. He, unlike the Adams cousins, is very wealthy and he's inclined towards moderation. So he had far more to lose if the colonies declared independence and it didn't work out. We think today of you declare independence and then you win a war and then the constitution and everything hums along and the United States becomes the United States. But that's the benefit of hindsight and knowing that it all worked out in a certain way. Hancock had no such luxury. No, no one at the time did. He didn't know that by declaring independence, he would, that the United States would prosper or even win the Revolutionary War. So he and many other moderates at the Second Continental Congress were hesitant to declare independence. And then eventually, he goes on to side on the side of independence and sign that declaration in July 1776. 
So you talked about about a century ago that the the signature started popping up as being important. But what what led to that? And when, when did somebody when do you think they first said, put your John Hancock on this? So it's pretty interesting because there's one, as I mentioned, there's one original copy of the Declaration of Independence. And Americans didn't see that copy until the early 1800s. So they didn't know how big he signed it or how beautiful his signature was. The original declaration that got distributed to the Continental Army and to the colonies was typeset. And at the bottom, it said, John Hancock, comma, president, all typeset. And so people knew his name. They knew he had to associate his name with the Declaration of Independence, but not his signature. And then it wasn't until an, a copy of the signed copy of the Declaration of Independence was made in the early 19, excuse me, the early 1800s that people, Americans began to see the size of his signature and that it was so, so elaborate. And so it seems that there's, there starts to be some association with association, excuse me, with his signature in the 1800s, but certainly by the early 1900s, there is the association of school children with signature and John Hancock. Where is that original copy? It is in the National Archives Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And I have to say, it is underwhelming <laughs> because it is so battered and faded that you could not make out any of the words, really. Uh, when I most recently visited, you can make out some of the, the downstrokes of Hancock's letters. The, the J, you can see just the downstroke and the K, but you wouldn't make out the name John Hancock. So that that first and only copy is in, in really rough shape, but it's on display for all Americans to see in Washington, D.C. at the National Archives. We'll come back, of course, to John Hancock. But first, Barbier, what is that name from? Where's Where did you get that name? I am a quarter French, a quarter Irish, and half German. And the French comes on my dad's side. Where did you grow up? I grew up in San Diego, California. And I love San Diego. And my family's still there, and I love visiting them. But it's a little trickier to talk about John Hancock in San Diego and have people in as interested as they are in Boston. So I've lived in Boston for many years because I love this city, and I love its rich history. When did you get interested in history? Since I was a little kiddo. My dad really liked history as well, and I... I loved visiting sites that made history feel real to me since I was a kid. And then in eighth grade, some of us got to take an East Coast trip with our school. And so we went to New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Charlottesville, Virginia. And that was so inspiring to me to see Independence Hall for the first time, the Supreme Court for the first time. And that really solidified my interest in U.S. history. How much of a difference do you notice about people who live on the East Coast and their interest in history 
compared to the people that live on the West Coast and their interest? I think there's a pride in specifically the origins of the United States on the East Coast more more on the East Coast than there is on the West Coast. I really get, I, I don't like it when people say, oh, San Diego, there's no history there. Of course there's history there. It's just not the history that we associate with the beginning of the United States. And so I think there's there's an appreciation here that that is, that su- supersedes what, maybe other people, the, the history that they feel connected to. The, the fact that there were 13 original colonies that still exist as states today, I think fills people with a lot of pride um, here on the East Coast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How many years have you lived in Boston? Over 20 years now. What got you there in the first place? history and baseball. (laughs) So I wanted to study. I knew that I wanted to get my PhD in American history, but I wanted to take a year off in between grad school and undergrad. So I moved to Boston because I wanted, I couldn't believe when I visited a couple of years prior, the Freedom Trail and that the sites that I had read about in history books, I could go visit. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And then on top of that, I am a big baseball fan. And I uh, had been reading for years and watching Red Sox games and the rivalry between the Red Sox and the Yankees. And I wanted to be a part of that as a fan, too. And I ultimately worked for the Boston Red Sox through graduate school, too. So I was able to combine my love of history and baseball with my early years here in Boston. What is the Freedom Trail? The Freedom Trail is a physically it's a brick trail, a red brick trail that extends two and a half miles in Boston. And it links up 16 historic sites that make it easier for visitors to navigate the narrow and winding streets of downtown Boston. Much of downtown Boston has a similar layout to what it looks like 300 years ago. There's a map of Boston from 1722 that you, (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it, but you could use it today to get around Boston. Some of the streets have changed changed names, but some of the routes are very similar. And some of the landmarks on a 1722 map still exist today. And so that makes the street not the streets not very well planned out they were planned out 300 over 300 years ago and so the freedom trail was a way to make it easier for people to not get lost on these narrow crooked streets and to see uh the sites related to boston's history so there's many revolutionary sites some of my favorite on the freedom trail are the old state house which was the seat of royal government the paul revere house which is where paul revere lived there's the battlefield of Bunker Hill as well. That's the last stop. 
and uh, th- there's many, there's 16 sites, but those are some of my favorites. When did you start your tour company and what's it called? Yield Tavern Tours is the name of my tour company that I started 10 years ago in 2013. We take visitors to see 10 sites on the Freedom Trail. But what's really fun about the tours is we stop at three historic taverns along the way to have a beer or cider in each. This is not just a gimmick to get people to like history. Of course, I think history is even better with beer. But in the 18th century, I mentioned Boston was a hard drinking town and taverns were where people talked politics, cut deals, built camaraderie, planned part of the Boston Tea Party. So drinking in a tavern is a historic activity. And so we talk about the, the American Revolution in Boston, but also the role of alcohol in the American Revolution. How much did John Hancock drink? A pretty good amount. And what built his popularity is that he treated others to drink, he or food and drink. There are so many instances in his life where he would pay for a party of some sort, whether just a a party at a tavern or a grand ball to entertain the French, the new French allies of the United States during the Revolutionary War. He entertained as a way to connect with people and supply them with food and drink was a signature of his. And this led him to build his popularity. But again, this isn't sort of just a gimmick. He gets something from it, too. He gets the admiration and respect of people. And as I mentioned, this was a man who wanted to feel that he belonged and connected and throwing parties and being generous was one way to get people on his side. When did he marry? He marries very late for 18th century standards. He marries in 1775, he marries Dorothy Quincy. And he'd been courting her for a few years. And even that's sort of extraordinary to begin courting someone and then not marry them for a few years later. Um, And that was his one and only wife through his lifetime. They had two children and neither survived past the age of 10. What's the story about the little boy who died? What happened to him? Christopher Snyder or or the 12-year-old boy killed we, before the massacre or his son? His son. We can come back to Christopher Snyder, but the uh, his what was his 8-year-old son? Yeah, so John, his name was John George Washington Hancock. You can tell who Hancock was giving a nod to there with by naming his son. He dies. There's not much known. I I really tried to get some more details and came up pretty short. It seems that his boy was ice skating and he fell and from some brain injury died shortly after. But but the details aren't much known. There's there's some legends about about it as well. But because I couldn't verify them with sources, I didn't. I don't repeat those in the book, but it it seems that he dies a short time after a fall while ice skating. What about the gout? How did he get gout and how big an impact did that have on his life? Such a big impact. Gout was an affliction that Hancock suffered with a lot in his adult years. It at some point got so bad that he couldn't hold a quill 
he couldn't, and then towards the very end of his life, he couldn't walk on his own. He was often carried by servants, went into rooms. He used a wheelchair at one point to navigate around. This was a pretty devastating contrast from the man who used to be able to walk on his own and wear fine clothing. By the end of his life, when he attends the Constitutional Ratification Convention in Massachusetts in 1788, the accounts say that he was wrapped in flannels and carried into the room. So you can imagine the, the way that that would affect Hancock, that he wouldn't be able to wear his fine clothing and and needed needed help to 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 move. Gout also affects him politically because he was in poor health for much of his adult life and there was some talk that maybe John Hancock would become the vice, the first vice president of the United States. And there, there would be a very good chance for him to, to have that. He certainly had the name ID and it was kind of accepted that if Virginia ratified the constitution, which it ultimately did, that George Washington would be selected the first president. But many federalists, that is the people who were supporting the constitution, lobbied Hancock and said that if you support the Constitution, maybe you'll be the vice president. Or even they dangled, if you, if Virginia doesn't ratify, you might even become president. And Hancock ultimately goes along with the Constitution and puts his weight behind it. But John Adams, as we know, becomes the second vice president. People turned their back on Hancock and the promises they made and account after account says that it's because they were worried about his health, that they didn't know that he could was even up for doing the job. And it seems, again, they're not exactly wrong. He didn't he wasn't a vigorous, vigorously involved in government in the last years of his life. How old was he when he died? Fifty six, which is actually young. How old was his wife when she died? Oh, I think she was in her 80s. She remarry? She does remarry. And she it was kind of scandalous because she remarried. Scandalous among her family, I should say. She right after Hancock dies, she sells off some um, some of the Hancock goods from the mansion. And then a couple years later, she marries one of Hancock's ship captains. And some in her family were worried that that didn't send a great signal for her to marry what they considered to be so far beneath her station and certainly beneath the station of her first husband. I will say that Dorothy, who was known as Dolly by her friends and loved ones, Dolly never seemed to fully care for John Hancock. Uh, It doesn't seem that she derived a lot of uh, companionship support from him it seems she just didn't when when her daughter dies for example she leaves hancock to be by herself and hancock would really like updates from her to know how she's doing and it's clear that he wants to connect with her after the tragic loss of their daughter and dolly doesn't write back so this is um it's a pattern throughout hancock's life where he wanted more affection and attention from his wife when did the daughter die and where did she go that she wasn't around John Hancock? 
the daughter dies during the Second Continental Congress, and Dolly was the only wife that was joining John Hancock at, at the Second Continental Congress. Where was and it? She did, what's that? Where was the uh, Second Continental? In Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And then things get really bad because the British forces occupy Philadelphia, and the Congress has to move uh, quickly, and they station themselves in Baltimore. So imagine being a pregnant woman on the move with your husband and being really the only wife with with a delegate. She didn't like Philadelphia. She didn't seem to like Baltimore. John Hancock didn't like Baltimore either. They were robbed shortly after they arrived. So Baltimore wasn't a place that they felt safe. And then they have to move back to Philadelphia. And then that's when Dolly says, then their daughter dies. And then that's when Dolly says, I'm heading back to Boston. It's pretty dangerous at this time anyway to be in Philadelphia. These British forces are occupying and moving quite near. And Boston was a little bit clearer in a way that it wasn't in 1775 when she fled Boston. What were the jobs that John Hancock had, public jobs? The most significant was being president of the Second Continental Congress. That came to him by chance, and it was the one that made him famous. And, uh, Peyton Randolph was the president of the Second Continental Congress. He's all, he had also served as the first president. He was from Virginia, and he got called back to Virginia during the beginning of the Second Continental Congress. And so John Hancock was selected president. And that's what really made his name. Because he was president, he was the one to sign the Declaration of Independence first. While in Boston in the early years, he served as a selectman, which is sort of like a city councilor. He served on the House of Representatives, the lower house in the Massachusetts legislature. And then significantly, he is serves as president of the Provincial Congress. I mentioned that this was the governing body that met in Concord. He served as their president, which meant, this is pretty radical, in 1774, when the Provincial Congress is declared, they're saying that they're the ones that are now going to govern, govern Massachusetts. It's sort of a shadow government because there was another governor at the time. His name was Thomas Gage. He was a general of British forces, and he'd occupied Boston. And there was the traditional Massachusetts colonial legislature that had existed for a century. But this Provincial Congress says, no, we're now the real government, we're going to start collecting taxes, we're going to prepare our militia, prepare for potential military engagements. And Hancock was the president of that. So that meant that he was, for to many, the highest ranking person in Massachusetts. And then he becomes president of the Second Continental Congress. And then he serves as a delegate. Once he resigns as president, he serves as a delegate and doesn't much like that. And then he is elected governor of Massachusetts. And so and he's the first elected government governor. He wins in a landslide and he is elected to one year terms almost every year until his death. What did he ever write that's memorable? Not much, <laughs> not much. This was not his political gift. His gift was not with words or arguments. Some of his letters I find to be very memorable 
but he wasn't he didn't persuade with in a traditional way the way samuel adams did who for example would write pieces in newspaper articles arguing against the parliamentary actions that he found to be unconstitutional or john adams argued in this way that wasn't hancock's gift hancock's gift was to influence in person he would as i mentioned throw these parties and host people and that was his way to bring people to his side how big a surprise was it to you when you woke up a couple weeks ago on a saturday morning and opened the wall street journal and you are the lead book reviewed huge artwork the whole thing i fell on the floor I really did. I I was so overjoyed and so grateful to the reviewer. And I loved the uh, the caption or the, the title of the article. It, it said the biggest name in Boston, which just perfectly fits John Hancock because it captures the large signature, but also his immense popularity. What does a review like that do for you? To be honest, I, I'm not... I know that it brings attention to the book, but I think I'm still too new. Um, it's it's still too new to know exactly the any other lasting impact, but I know that it drew attention to the book and I received wonderful emails and saying, congratulations, that's, you know, so exciting. So I think it, it brings attention to the book in a really positive way because the review was really so so great so when you started your tour guide business did you do the tours yes i still do so i have a great team what was your philosophy and i mean were you competing with others and are you competing with others today i started the tour company as i mentioned 10 years ago but the idea for the tour company came years before that. When I finished my PhD, I threw a big graduation party. I had family from California coming out and friends from New England coming out. And I organized a Freedom Trail pub crawl. And I made a guide for all of the guests. And I got some old looking paper and I burned the edges to make it look old. And I told people about the history of the taverns and the sites that we'd be seeing. So on this printed guide, everyone got got one. And my older brother from San Diego and who lived there at the time, who's not impressed by much, he said, hey, who wrote this guide? And I said, I did. And he said, you should do this for other people. This is great. And that sunk in my brain that... I might do this for other people. So that's what started the idea for it. I I didn't ever, if you'd asked me that day, do you think that you, you know, before my brother said that, do you think that you'll become a tour guide and a company owner one day? I, I probably would have said no, but it comes from a place of wanting to introduce people to Boston's history and its great beer but also to, I, I'm a visual learner, I'm an experiential learner. And so for people to see the sites while talking about the sites, I love being able to make history feel real to people. So that's the, that's the origin story of the company. And we have just the 
best guests over the years who have told people about our tours and recommended our tours. And I have such a great team of tour guides over the years, many who give tours for years and they're fantastic at it and passionate. And so it's a really fun experience in Boston. We get locals too. We get people from Massachusetts joining us, New England, who want a fun day out. How long is the tour? It's two hours. How much is the tour? $75 per person. And that includes a beer or cider at each of the three taverns. Do you notice any difference in people after you've stopped at that third tavern and they've (laughs) had their third beer? (laughs) We really get such lovely guests. (laughs) And what I love at the end is to hear which beers they've enjoyed the most and which sites. But yeah, people are always enthusiastic at the end. What's their favorite historical stop? Ooh, that's a that's a mm, that's a good question. I would say Granary Bearing Ground is always a pleaser, and that's one of my favorites as well. It's where Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, and John Hancock are buried, in addition to many others, uh, James Otis, Robert Treat Payne, for example, many other revolutionaries, and that's a real pleaser because it is. It's the third stop on the Freedom Trail, and it's so stunning that the that these important revolutionaries are buried right next to a hotel and a coffee shop and a tavern. And so it really makes, it shows you the way that Boston has built up around these historic sites. Do you limit the number on each tour? We cap at 12 because we want to provide an intimate experience, give people a chance to answer questions and um, really feel connected to one another. So the the big tour groups there, that that's great for for some. But for our for us, we really focus. We want to focus on on the guests as much as possible. Where did you get your education? I grew up in San Diego and went to public school in La Jolla, California. And then I went to UC Davis for undergraduate, my undergraduate degree where I studied history. And I will say I was lucky enough to study with a Pulitzer Prize winning history professor, Alan Taylor. He had won one at the time and he's since won a second. And I took his American Revolution class and I'd always, I I went into undergrad as a history major and I'd always loved history and knew that I wanted to teach it in some way. But taking Alan Taylor's American Revolution class really um, changed things for me. He he was so inspiring and so smart and and generous as as a teacher that I wanted to do the same for other people. He also I went into his office one day for office hours and I said, I'm going to go to Boston for spring break. This was um, uh, spring break was after the end of his period, his class. But I I asked him, what should I do? This was going to be my first time in Boston. And he said, well, you should do the Freedom Trail. And I said, "Okay." And I wrote down Freedom Trail in my notes. And again, little did I know many years later that I would be giving tours of the Freedom Trail. But I felt so grateful for my undergrad education and specifically that experience with Alan Taylor that I wanted to pursue my PhD in American history. And I did that at Boston College. Any particular area of history that you focused on? I focused on Boston's history 
during the revolution and mostly in the early republic. I examined a group of women who, who formed essentially a book club. It was called the Literary Circle. And they were founded in 1805 in Boston. And what was so, and that was the first literary circle to be founded in the United States. So that alone was interesting to me. But when I dug into the backstories of the women participants, I learned that many of them who were siblings, their fathers had participated in the Boston Tea Party. And that really changed my opinion about these women and their legacy that they inherited that this radical legacy that they inherited from their fathers and then they went on to do something radical it for themselves as well not politically radical but culturally and socially radical a couple more questions about the tour itself how many tours do you do a day one usually just one in the afternoons so the tours only run in the afternoons and um they usually start about two o'clock and then if we need Another tour, because it's sold out, will we'll offer a second tour. How many tour guides do you have, and how does someone become one of your tour guides? We have three tour guides now. We have just, we've had an amazing group of tour guides in the past, and I'm so grateful for all of them. And how you become a tour guide is you have studied history, and you have a real passion, not just for history, but for teaching and for people. You get the pleasure of meeting new people every day when giving a tour. And we want our guests to feel welcome. And so having good energy and enthusiasm for history and for people uh, will make you a good Yield Tavern Tour guide. When did you say, I want to do a book on John Hancock and why? The answer lays a little bit earlier when... I first started giving tours. I was getting great questions at the end of the tour, including what book could we read to learn more? And there are so many books about the American Revolution generally, but not exactly for what I thought the tour guests might want. So I wrote my first book, Boston and the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. That came out in 2017. And that was really meant for my tour guests and anyone who was coming to Boston who wanted to get a sense of the revolutionary history. And as I was writing that, I knew that John Hancock would be my next project. And there there wasn't sort of a, a bolt of lightning or anything like that. I just knew that there was a story that wasn't being told about Hancock and his role in revolutionary Boston that was worthy of sharing. So there's only been a few biographies written about him in in recent years. So about 20 years ago, there was one biography and then the last biography written by a scholar was written 40 years 43 years ago so it was time for hancock to have a a, a fresh eyes and i knew from leading the tours that people were interested in hancock once once i started sharing information about him beyond just that signature where did he go to school He went to Boston Latin School, where you can still go to school today. Uh, It's a public school in Boston. You have to test to get into it. One of our tour guides, Kelly, went to school there. She's a Boston native. He went to Boston Latin School, and then he went on to Harvard, where he graduated um, a few years later. In your book, you talk about a man named John Maine. Who was he, and what role did he play in Hancock's life? 
John Maine was an agitator in Hancock's life. He was a newspaper printer, originally from Scotland, but he immigrated to Boston and set up a newspaper and a shop in Boston. And he was very critical of the radicals in Boston for their non-importation agreement. So this is what they called a boycott back then. And because he said that some of the radicals here were being a little bit hypocritical by calling for a boycott, but they also um, seem to be importing British goods on, on the side. And so what John Maine did was he acquired likely through some connections with customs officials and maybe because he was paid to to publish these there's some speculation about that that he was going to publish the ship manifests the list of cargo for all of these merchants that were claiming to be complying with the non-importation agreement and he he had a particular eye on hancock and he would publish these ship manifests on the front page of his newspaper announcing that hancock was importing British goods when he shouldn't have been. Here he is going along with the boycott, and yet he's also not going along with the boycott. Now, some of Maine's uh, some of Maine's claims are uh, technicalities. Hancock said, "Sure, I imported this, but we're allowed to import this this material, but not that." But it eventually became so detrimental to Hancock's public image that he. Hancock just said, I'm not going to import any British, any goods anymore for myself or for other people because it's too damaging. But then Hancock gets a, such a stroke of good luck when one of his overseas partners in London asks Hancock about John Maine. And he says, do you know anyone who could collect debts for me that John Maine owes? And you can only imagine the delight Hancock felt in getting that letter. And he said, yes, I I could help you with that. And so he collects, he hires John Adams as his attorney and they go on to seize essentially all of Maine's printing presses and it shuts the business, excuse me, it shuts the newspaper down shortly after. So Hancock got his revenge. Page 79, you say, and still Maine was not done. He resorted to printing insults about many sons of liberty. He called Otis uh, Counselor Muddlehead, an especially cruel name, given that Otis had recently uh, uh, severely injured, was severely injured in a tavern fight. It would never again be completely clear of mind. Hancock was Johnny Dupe, who was the milch cow of the well-disposed, he had a, quote, silly, conceited grin, a fool's cap on his head, a bandage tied over his eyes. Those are all in quotes. All of these traits prevented the merchant from seeing the people who used him for his money. They professed to be his friends, even as they were rifling his pockets. Explain all that. This sort of gets at what I was saying about the criticisms that John and Samuel Adams had against Hancock, too, that he was vain. That was a pretty common criticism of John Hancock at the time. But Maine was picking up on something that was sort of circulating in British, in in royal officials' minds, was that Hancock was the dupe of James Otis, who he called Counselor Muddlehead, and Samuel Adams, that he went along with their radical policies even when he didn't want to, and that they would be using him to 
fund parties or or anything like you know something similar while just while not liking him. There was a point when one of the most memorable mobs of the American Revolution happens in defense of John Hancock in 1768. When a mob when after one of John Hancock's ships is seized by royal officials, a mob targets these customs officials and uh, and and beat them up. They assault them. They set one of the boats owned by the customs officials on fire in Boston Common. It's a very public display. And Hancock is less troubled by the politics of it, and he wants to cut a deal because he wants a ship back. So he says, "I will stand trial if I can have my ship back because I want I want to make money." And when John Adams, excuse me, when Samuel Adams and James Otis heard that Hancock made this deal, they went to his house on Beacon Hill that night, along with many other Sons of Liberties, and said, you can't make this deal. It looks bad for everyone. And after, and then Hancock reneged on the deal. And when he did that, he got a reputation among royal officials for being, they would say, like, unswayed by... Otis and Adams, they said that he didn't go along with them, but that he or he didn't agree with them, but he went along with them because it was safer that way. And so Maine is picking up on this criticism. What's and and again, it's not untrue. Hancock did back out of this deal because it was safe for him for him to go along with what the radicals wanted. But it also misses the 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 other points of that Hancock would do things for self-preservation. So he would go along with the radicals when it worked best for him. But then just a year later in 1770, a year after Maine writes this, Hancock pulls away from politics altogether. And the royal governor at the time, Thomas Hutchinson, is trying to get Hancock on his side, saying, you know, I want you to become a friend of the government. And Hancock says, I'm done with all of it. I just want to step away from politics. And he, and Hutchinson said that Hancock said, I don't plan on talking to Adams, Samuel Adams much either. So he was swayed, but then he stepped away from them entirely shortly after. Who is James Otis? James Otis is a really interesting figure that was most prominent in Boston in the early 1760s. He's the one who, he's a lawyer who came up with the idea of no taxation without representation. He didn't come up with that snappy slogan, but he came up with the idea of it. He was also instrumental in the Stamp Act Congress of 1765, which banded together against a tax passed by Parliament. But he was pretty interesting because he would he would write these scathing critiques of the lieutenant governor at the time, but then sort of backtrack and an ally with him. So he was he was pretty inconsistent. And while it's very difficult to diagnose anyone from the 21st century, anyone from the 18th century and the 21st century today, it, it's clear that he had some mental health challenges. And this leads him ultimately to become, uh, after this tavern fight in 1769, his head, he gets bashed in by a club and he's really never right 
after that. He was prone to fits of um, screaming and he would drink too much and he fired his gun indoors at one point. So he became more unstable through the late 1760s into the 1770s. And you you really don't see his influence much further beyond that. How much money was John Hancock worth and how did he make it? I can't ever answer this question in the in a way equivalent to today's dollars because the the money was just so different then. But if you think of an American, you know, the top 10 richest people in America today, that would be John Hancock, like that equivalent. But that but there wasn't that much money circulating at this time for him to have what amounted to billions of dollars. He made his money there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is that he inherits it. And when I say that to people, there's usually a look of disappointment on their face. So I always give the, the somewhat longer answer too, which is he inherits it from his uncle Thomas, who was a self-made man. He had built a merchant house. It began with a bookstore in Boston, and then he kept growing and growing his shops, and he would import and export goods from from London. He's Thomas Hancock was one of the lead suppliers of the British Army. And that, when the British Army is at war, which they were a lot in the uh, in the 18th century, he profited from that. And so Hancock, so Thomas is a remarkable figure because in his lifetime, he amasses the largest sum of money in, uh, in Massachusetts. And that's very unusual to rise so much above your origins. Then John Hancock, when he gets adopted by Uncle Thomas at seven, he gets these fine education experiences at Boston Latin and Harvard. And then he goes on to become a partner in the house of Hancock. That's the name of the the uncle's business. And then when Thomas dies, Hancock inherits it all. So as you do these tours, I I don't know how many you need, I want to ask you to tell me, but what are the four or five most often asked questions of you? So one of the most important, or one of the most frequent, is how did Hancock make his money, what you just asked. Uh, because when I mentioned that he's one of the richest and most popular men in Massachusetts, people always think, oh, I only thought of him for the signature. So that's always interesting to people. One of the other common questions I get is why Boston why is all of these this revolutionary activity happening in Boston when it does? And that's the the million dollar question that historians have spent so much time analyzing. But a short answer is that Boston was was um, they had such pride in being a part of the British Empire. But they had proportionately sent more men, Massachusetts had, to fight as an ally of the British in the French and Indian War than any other colony. So just before Parliament begins taxing the colonists to pay for this war, Massachusetts had sent so many men already to fight. And then one of the first taxes that is passed in by Parliament is seven, in 1764. It's called the Sugar Act. And this was going to target primarily those who imported molasses. And I've mentioned that Boston was the leading rum distiller and they made their rum from molasses. 
So Boston really gets its back up against this because this was going to cut into one of their lead uh, their their lead industries. And then there's also personal antagonisms between James Otis, for example, and Thomas Hutchinson and Samuel Adams and other crown officials that date back before these taxes started being passed. So there's all of these factors that make Boston take the charge in violent rebellion when against parliamentary taxes. So stepping back from John Hancock, if you had to say, maybe let me ask it this way. If he wasn't there, he didn't exist, what would be different? That is a really compelling question that I, I'm going to have to think about that for a minute. We see an example. So I there's a couple, there's kind of, different, of course, phases in Hancock's life. But if we think about the rebellion and him not being there, Hancock gave his name and and so, you know, social credibility to much of the movement. And that was appealing because precisely because he was a moderate. That's why he was the perfect president for the provincial Congress, because he wasn't he hadn't been the ones leading this charge he had participated in some of the some of the protests, but he hadn't been the one leading the charge. So he served as a moderate, a more calm example, a foil to the radicals who could lose popular support. Some of their tactics were pretty extreme and people did worry about mob rule as opposed to that's as dangerous as rule by a tyrannical king to some. And so he was, I think, in, in some ways, just able to calm people who might have been afraid of of the rebel government. And then in the in the new state of Massachusetts, he really provides a calming force in a way that we see in sharp contrast to the one other man who served as governor during Hancock's time when he was alive, and that's James Bowden. James Bowden reacted quite harshly to what we know today as Shays' Rebellion in the 17, in 1786 and 1787. He raises a militia to take on these insurgents in uh, Western Massachusetts. And many of them get sentenced to death and, and Bowdoin takes away voting rights, many civil rights. It's pretty extreme and people don't like it. And it's not a surprise that Bowdoin gets voted out of office and Hancock get, gets reelected. And Hancock does what's needed. He pardons almost everyone who was sentenced to death. And he is, again, sort of the calm that the state needs. So to wrap this conversation up, last question. If you sign up for the Ye Olde Tavern Tour in Boston, $75, what happens if you don't drink? You could get something else. You could get a Coke or a water. Someone could have your beer if you wanted. It's not required that you drink. And of course, over the years, we've had women who are pregnant who don't drink, but they still are there to learn and have a good time because the drinking is certainly a fun part of it, but it's not essential to enjoying the experience. What's your next book? Oh, I can't reveal that yet, but I will tell you this. You won't be surprised when you find out about it. <laughs> it's right in my wheelhouse. 
Our guest's book is called King Hancock, The Radical Influence of Moderate of a Moderate Founding Father. And our guest has been Brooke Barbier. And we thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I loved this conversation. Thanks for listening to Book Notes Plus. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.